0: This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, talking about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. Later in this hour, it's Black History Month, and we have a terrific interview about Martin Luther King at the Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma with his biographer Taylor Branch. First up, from Iowa to New Hampshire after the impeachment trial. Trump Watch starts right now. Well, it's been a big week in American politics. Monday, the long-awaited Iowa Democratic caucuses failed to release results. Tuesday, Trump gave his State of the Union speech. We hope it will be his last. Wednesday, the Senate Republican majority voted not to convict Trump of abuse of power and obstruction of justice and not to remove him from office for his high crimes and misdemeanors. And today, Trump gave a 63-minute victory speech. For comment, we turn to Harold Meyerson. Of course, he's editor-at-large of The American Prospect and a regular contributor to the LA Times op-ed page. Harold, welcome back.
1: Always good to be here, John.
0: Well, let's start with yesterday, the vote in the Senate. A single Republican voted that Trump was guilty, Mitt Romney. Every Democrat voted in favor of conviction and removal from office. There were no defections, not even Joe Manchin. Some of my friends are fearful about what Trump will do next now that it's clear he won't be held responsible for anything. He could stand in the middle of Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody, and Mitt Romney would be the only Republican senator to say that was wrong. Uh, Do you share this anxiety about what Trump could do now?
1: Well, I mean, I had this anxiety before, (laughs) and I still have it now. I don't think my anxiety level has risen because Trump is capable of just about anything he was before he was impeached, he was before the trial, he is now the same after the trial. So, no, my anxiety uh, is no higher than it was before, but of course it's off the charts.
0: (laughs) Well, I, I was in the car and turned on the radio just as Mitch McConnell was beginning his speech he said the founding fathers warned us against the dangers of factionalism, factionalism and now, quote, our adversaries seek to divide us against each other. He said that Democrats, the Democrats were, quote, consumed with partisan rancor, close quote. I wonder if you care to comment on that.
1: Well, psychologists would call that projection. Yes, uh, you know. I mean, uh, it, and you know, even before Trump, the Republican Party has been positioning itself as a xenophobic, white racist party. Uh, so, uh, you know, uh, for uh, to, to say that the Democrats are dividing the country, uh, if you look at the Democrats by most criteria, demographically, age, etc., it is, you know, infinitely more diverse than the Republican Party. The Republican Party now, whenever there's an election, over 90% of the people voting for the Republicans are white. Uh, so if we want to get into the question of who is playing identity politics more, I think the Republicans are the club champions.
0: And uh, what's happened to the Republicans is... Evident in, in one incident I read about today, Joe Walsh is this right-wing uh, radio talk show host and former Republican representative from Illinois who was running in the Republican, Republican primary in Iowa. He told a crowd of thousands of Iowa Republicans that Americans deserved a president who is decent, who tells the truth, and who doesn't care only about himself— and the Republican crowd booed. That seems, that seems like where we are today with the Republicans.
1: It is. I mean, you know, the Republicans don't disappoint. They're right out of central casting. If you want an insular uh, group that uh, has succumbed to what is called epistemic closure, that yeah. is uh, insulated against anything resembling actual information, Uh, You know, there they are. And, uh, you know, they don't disappoint. They are uh, sort of a one-note party, and they hold that one note regardless of just about anything. Uh, And and if it clashes harmoniously with everything else, uh, you know, that's okay. That's what they do.
0: Well, return with us now to Monday night in Iowa, right. where I don't want to return to Monday
1: night,
0: <laughs> where where months of campaigning by dozens of candidates with thousands of volunteers spending tens of millions of dollars led to to no results. Now it's three days later. Later, we have more or less virtually complete results. Bernie came in first in the popular vote. Last count I saw was something like 97% reporting. Bernie had 26.5% in the final round. Mayor Pete came in second in the popular vote with 25.0. The top two seemed to have tied in the delegate allocation with 11 each. Third was Elizabeth Warren, 20.3% of the popular vote in the final round and five delegates, and then Joe Biden way behind with 13.7% of the popular vote and zero delegates. Uh, first, I, I just have to ask you about the process here. The app didn't work, but the backup paper trail did. We do have results finally today. It's Thursday evening. So was this a disaster or was it just a delay of a couple of days?
1: No, it was a disaster because, uh, you know, you need to know who wins the caucus because it kicks off uh, the political uh, race, really. Uh, The winner usually gets uh, a bounce. Uh, People know where the other candidates are. It uh, sets the stage for New Hampshire, which is the second part of the initial bounce. Winners of Iowa and New Hampshire usually go on to win the presidential nomination, and when the result is clouded, uh, first of all, it delays that. And secondly, this, this can call into doubt among people who like to doubt it. The validity of the political process reinforce people who say, oh, my vote doesn't matter, that, that sort of thing. By the way, there was another disquieting uh, aspect to all of this. And that was the low turnout, uh, which no one was expecting. My hunch, and it's a hunch, nothing more, is that the uh, uncertainty as to who would be the strongest candidate against Donald Trump led people who might have voted anyway if this were just a primary, but you know they weren't about to go to a caucus and say, I'm for this person and then I'll go to this person, if they were uh, really kind of uncertain about this. And so I think the uncertainty was a major factor in reducing participation as well.
0: Yeah, and then we have today's news about the head of the Democratic uh, National Committee, Tom Perez, saying there should be some kind of a recount. That doesn't really—obviously, I, I, he, he intends to make us more confident in the results. It doesn't make me more confident. How about you?
1: Well, and the New York Times just posted a story on its homepage, I think within the last 20 minutes or so, uh, pointing out, Vote counting flaws that they detected, even with the numbers that are out there now. So uh, I, I think this is going to be a a mess for some time. I think the best we can do is figure that Bernie and Buttigieg came out of there, uh, Biden came out of there uh, almost politically dead, and uh, Elizabeth Warren is, I think, somewhat weakened uh, by this. Certainly going into New Hampshire. That's about all we can all we can conclude.
0: Well, so if we if we add together the votes for Bernie and Elizabeth Warren on the on the progressive side, they got just under half of the vote. The so-called moderates, we call them the Wall Street Democrats, got slightly less. It seems like so. Uh, the voters of Iowa were divided pretty much down the middle. Is that a fair statement?
1: That is a fair statement, and it may be a fair statement about the Democratic Party as a whole. Uh, One of the things that happened, Biden's collapse, which I think is ongoing, we'll see more of it in New Hampshire, I don't think uh, he's going to be able to raise much more money going forward. Uh, Biden's collapse kind of opens that lane, the moderate half of the party lane, For Pete Buttigieg, with the uh, however, you know, there's a little asterisk there, and the asterisk there is Michael Bloomberg and hundreds of millions of dollars, if not more, (laughs) uh, that will Buttigieg will now have to uh, fight for that wing of the party, Uh, and uh, you have Bernie and uh, Elizabeth in the uh, in the other wing. But you know, there's some question I regret to say as to Warren's viability. She's in this peculiar position of being sort of everybody's consensus second choice. And I would expect her, when the candidates debate on Friday, to try to make more of that and say, you know, the Democrats need unity or we can't beat Trump. And I may be, you know, uh, Ms. Unity, uh, even though I have a pretty left-wing program uh, going forward. Uh, If she doesn't make that sale, I think she's in... Uh, she's in trouble, and that, that, that could be problematic for the left, in as much as it's not clear if all of her, her supporters would then go to Bernie or or elsewhere. So this is this is all uh, a conundrum.
0: Well, the Biden people today are are pointing out the many times over the past history of democratic primaries where the person who came in first in Iowa later faded and disappeared uh, where people who were doing poorly in the polling in New Hampshire at this point ended up winning uh, and they caution us that the very first results don't necessarily determine what's going to happen in the other you know, dozens of, of primaries, especially on Super Tuesday.
1: Well, that's true, except for two things. One, um, to compete on Super Tuesday when people will be voting in California, Texas, and 13 other states, you're going to need a lot of money, which Joe Biden already doesn't have. And two, the reason Joe Biden didn't do well in Iowa was Joe Biden, and that's not going to change going <laughs> forward. Yes. Uh, he might be able to do reasonably well in South Carolina still, but it's hard to see how he can come back um given, you know, his inadequacies uh, on the stump and as a candidate. So I think his problems are more serious than obviously what the Biden campaign put out today.
0: Well, if Biden is the big loser in Iowa, some of our pundit friends are saying the the surprise winner in Iowa Place of Biden is not Mayor Pete; it's Bloomberg, who you already mentioned. And Bloomberg seems to feel that way. He announced right away that he's doubling his DV spending and increasing his paid campaign staff to two thousand people. That's almost as big as the American Prospect staff.
1: Almost, uh, but you can't count our writing fellows. Today. Uh, no, no. I mean, you know, if, if nothing else, the Bloomberg campaign. Will keep the nation at full employment, which, which I, I, I don't want to, you know, uh, badmouth him. That's a real achievement, uh, you know. But I mean, we have to take Bloomberg seriously, and because I take him seriously, I also have to think that he would be a uniquely weak candidate in the swing states of the Midwest that Hillary lost to Trump in in twenty sixteen. The combination. Of uh, his avid promotion of globalizing capitalism, of offshoring industry, and then the social liberalism of uh, supporting gun control and things like that, I think will make him toxic to the same voters in Wisconsin and Michigan and those states uh, who opted to vote for Trump over over Hillary. So uh, the money is real, but you know there are still he, he brings, I think, unique limits on a Democratic candidate's appeal to the voters who uh, the Democrats will need to win back some of if they're going to take the White House in November.
0: Well, the moderates, it seems like right now at this very early stage in the primaries now face a choice between Mayor Pete and Mayor Mike, let's call him. Uh, of mm-hmm. those two, wouldn't you say Mayor Mike is certainly more qualified to run the United States of America than the, former, than the mayor of South Bend, Indiana?
1: Well, based on the size of the cities, hell yes. <laughs> but uh, I would also say that uh, for all the limitations of Mayor Pete, of whom I am not notably a fan, He does not personify financialized capitalism as uh, as Mayor Mike does, and I think uh, you know when the various uh, pieces of baggage that each candidate would bring to a race against Trump are weighed against each other, I actually think uh, Bloomberg's uh, probably outweigh. uh, Buttigieg, whatever the, the possessive of <laughs> Buttigieg would be. Okay. Uh, so, uh, you, know, and, you, know, you know, look, um, uh, there are issues like taking money out of politics, on which Mayor Pete is just better than Mayor Mike, or
0: yeah. whatever he
1: may stand for. He does not stand for uh, reducing the $1, you know, one vote equation that American politics has succumbed to.
0: Well, return with us now to Wednesday night, to the House chamber, to the State of the Union, uh, where Republicans cheered Trump wildly and Nancy Pelosi tore up his speech carefully at the end. You listened to Trump's speech. What What is your assessment of it?
1: Well, I think it was actually a pretty effective campaign speech, although when he actually gets on the stump, he gets, you know, more profane and there are more digressions and there's more free association and less of a prepared text. Uh, but I think, you know, he sounded the themes of the economy uh, is, is working, which he overstated uh, greatly and took credit for stuff that uh, really happened on Barack Obama's watch. Uh, and, uh, you know, the uh, savage attacks on, uh, on immigrants, uh, putting out falsehoods about, you know. Uh, all, all the crime they commit, whereas, of course, immigrants actually commit less crime than native-born Americans. You know, and actually, I think the reality show aspects, uh, you know, which he probably bought the serial rights to before, before the speech, so he gets paid for it. Um, you know, that will be part of his stump speech, too. But I think that same xenophobic uh, approach, uh, combined with taking more credit for an economy he says is better than it actually is, is going to be the way uh, two two of the three ways he runs for re-election, the third way being just concocting and, and, and stuff that vilifies whoever the eventual Democratic nominee is and anyone who dares to say boo about him.
0: Last question. After the Senate vote exonerating Trump, after the meltdown in Iowa, many of my friends are feeling a sense of dread about the election. It's clear that in Iowa, Democratic incompetence was a big problem, not Republican dirty tricks. And as we've said, it's clear that Democratic voters are divided, that there hasn't been any resolution of the questions that they have to decide. Did anything happen this week to make it more likely that the Democrats will defeat Trump on November 3rd?
1: Let me think. Uh... (laughs) Well, you know, I would I would take it as as a, a measure of hope that while some of the you know our Democratic friends uh, performed dismally in uh, in, in Iowa and counting the vote and, and, and such as that, that uh, the campaigns uh, which were staffed with some very sharp Democrats of Bernie Sanders and Pete Buttigieg uh, performed uh, pretty spectacularly well, all things considered. Uh, I I think the main issue for the Democrats for now, for a while, is that they do not have a candidate who transcends particular political lanes and getting their supporters. Dan Balls at the Washington Post, I think, very astutely pointed out that, you know, whether it's Buttigieg or or Bernie uh, coming in with 26, maybe even 27 percent of the vote, uh, any previous winner of the Iowa caucus, had much more than that, had at least 40%, which suggested an ability to put together different wings of the party. I mean, the Democrats have always been sort of the politically most diverse party, covering the widest spectrum ideologically and otherwise of any party in the world. Uh, And right now, uh, it's hard for them uh, to to see how all of this can come together. And that's one reason why I find uh, the troubles that Elizabeth Warren is experiencing so troubling, because I think she might have that capacity Assuming she can win enough votes, which uh, is, uh, you know, we don't know. So don't despair, but, you know, there's certainly grounds for, uh, as I said at the beginning, uh, a certain level of anxiety.
0: Harold Meyerson with a certain level of anxiety. Read him at prospect.org. Harold, thanks. Always great to have you on the show.
1: Always great to be here, John.
0: I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK with Trump Watch and the Trump Watch podcast. Next up, it's Black History Month, and we have a great interview about Martin Luther King in Selma in 1965. That's in a minute on KPFK when Trump Watch continues. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in LA on KPFK, streaming at kpfk.org, and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. It's Black History Month, and for our special programming, we turn away from Donald Trump to Martin Luther King. The years 1965 to 68 saw the climax of the Civil Rights Movement and the massive escalation of the war in Vietnam. The story of those years, intense, dizzying, and heartbreaking, has now been told by Taylor Branch in a monumental new book titled At Canaan's Edge, America in the King Years, 1965 to 68. It's the third and final volume in his series that starts in 1954. He's won the Pulitzer Prize, the National Book Critics Circle Prize, and many other awards. I've read all three of his series of books on King. I teach the first one, Parting the Waters. So it's a special pleasure for me to say to Taylor Branch, welcome to the program.
2: Thank you, John. Nice to be here.
0: Well, this is a 1,000-page book. The first word on the first page of the first chapter is terror. So let's start where you start. What was this terror?
2: Well, it, it starts early in 1965 over the, the movement for the right of black people to vote in the South. And in 1965, as before, uh, in American history, terror had been a weapon to subdue the black population and intimidate them from voting. And uh, this uh, is an incident in Lowndes County, which is the county lying between uh, Selma and Montgomery. Uh, After Dr. King's movement had announced plans or an ambition to march from Selma Selma to Montgomery through Lowndes County, the Klan in Lowndes County got wind that one of the small itinerant preachers coming through Lowndes County was planning to discuss the voting rights movement. And uh, they sent word through the school system, uh, through the school teachers, that if this itinerant preacher came back into the county to discuss voting, that the Klan would come into the church and get him. And and they did, or at least they tried. They surrounded the church in the middle of the services, and it was a a moment of terror with some warning between the black and the the white cultures uh, there. And some of the same Klansmen that were involved in this uh, later committed uh, murders against uh, civil rights workers in this
0: county. So this story begins in 1965 in, in Selma, and Selma uh, at the time was a, a, a word that was sort of synonymous with racist violence and terror. The first attempt to march had been uh, uh, beaten back with uh, horrible uh, official violence, and then King agreed to lead this march for voting rights from Selma to the state capital in Montgomery. But when they set off uh, with thousands of people marching behind him who'd come from all over the United States... King turned back at the Edmund Pettus Bridge. I remember that day. It was a dismaying event to many of his supporters. Why did King turn back?
2: We have to remember that on the very night, March 7th of the of the beating, the Bloody Sunday beating, King put out an appeal to the whole country to come, not to, uh, not to send a letter to their congressman or to make a contribution or to come to an SCLC convention but to come to selma not next month but tomorrow and stand with these people and they did from all over the country uh, and it was a national and even an international event whether they'd be allowed to march at the same time he was in negotiation <clears throat> with the justice department uh with the administration the johnson white house uh, and actually with the federal courts because a federal court enjoined king from marching again until he could hold a hearing on whether or not to order protection either the federal government or the state government to protect the marchers so king was um being pulled uh, as he would be for this entire volume in almost every different direction with people trying to kill him people wiretapping him the federal government saying if you don't march we will support a voting rights act and the and some people in the movement saying if you don't march you'll destroy this movement because people have come here willing to risk their lives and uh, so it was a moment of of profound um uh, difficulty made o- only more mischievous uh by Governor Wallace, who removed the state troopers from blocking the way at the last moment, opening the path for king uh and he had to make a a split second decision: do I turn this march around and um and risk alienating my own supporters, or do I march through this highway out into the middle of clan country uh with pe- most people not Capable of marching more than five or ten miles and and violating the federal injunction and injuring the hope of a voting rights act, so he had to make a political decision that I think holds up pretty well in history, but it certainly was controversial within his movement then.
0: Well, at at the time, some of the people who were most uh... dismayed uh, by King turning back at at Pettus Bridge were the courageous young activists in SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. Uh, they had a critique of of King that only broadened in the the next uh, year or two. Tell us about that division between uh, SNCC and King.
2: Well, there are two aspects to it, I think, uh, to be blunt. Part of it was uh, rivalry uh, that, to some degree, went to and fro. They felt that he got the publicity and they did the work. Uh, They had been against the first march on Bloody Sunday because they were afraid people might get hurt and that they thought it was grandstanding it wouldn't do any good then when people did get hurt they turned around and said that they wanted to march come hell or high water and were critical of king uh for marching only part of the way part of this was <clears throat> whatever king did uh, they wanted to do something else but uh, at a much deeper level and a more significant level they were really growing uh weary of uh nonviolence as something that they said was unfairly expected by the country of black people only in a country that otherwise admired John Wayne and, and James Bond, and that that it was profoundly unfair for the victims of injustice to have to seek out further injustice in nonviolence to get the country to, to do what it ought to do in the first place. So there was a weariness of, with uh, King's tactic of nonviolence, and quite frankly, a, also a doubt that any of the movement was going to bear fruit. They couldn't see Five years ahead, that, you know that uh, two million black people would be voting within a couple of years, and that this really would uh, alter the structure of parties and politics in the United States. And they they were too battered uh, for that, so they were turning against King and they were turning against nonviolence at the same time.
0: So on the third try, the marchers did go from Selma to Montgomery. This time, uh, they had national guard protection and the world's media and. People from all over the world joining them. And after that Selma to Montgomery march, the president, LBJ, went on TV gave an amazing speech to what was his largest TV audience, 70 million people. I had remembered that the speech ended, We Shall Overcome, quite an amazing thing for a President of the United States to say. But I had forgotten what he said before that. You quote him as saying, At times, history and fate meet at a single time in a single place to shape a turning point in man's unending search for freedom. So it was at Lexington and Concord so it was a century ago at appomattox and so it was last week in selma alabama close quote remind us of the significance of that speech and, and and what the point of it was
2: well it was to it was to introduce the voting rights act and and to propose it uh, president johnson was throwing his administration at the height of its popularity uh, behind a quite radical a notion to essentially remove from the southern states the right to set the qualifications for voters on the grounds that no matter what they said despite the fifteenth amendment guaranteeing the right of black people to vote and years of litigation on you know due process and fairness the states just couldn't be trusted to register black voters they would they would make up all manner of subterfuge uh, to keep them from voting and so they he threw his weight behind the, the, the voting rights act to essentially guarantee the right to vote if, if if it took the federal government to do it now to to do that he essentially set this as a measure in the in the full context of american history about what freedom means saying essentially we're a country that's got only one story what what does freedom mean? And in our incandescent moments, that's what our leaders have, have summoned us to, uh, to to make real the promise of equal citizenship. So that very eloquent speech was a jaw-dropping moment in American history because you had the first Southern president in a century adopting the motto and slogan of the Civil Rights Movement, not just for a rhetorical flourish, but behind a, a, a radical bill fulfilling the promise of the 15th Amendment to guarantee the right voting, even though he, Johnson, knew quite well that it would threaten uh, the base of uh, Democratic presidents, which had been uh, segregationist solid South for a century, and and that has certainly come true. I mean, two generations later, the South is pretty much solid Republican, because uh, Johnson made the the Democrats the party of integration and the party of black voting rights in the South with this uh, single speech.
0: We're speaking with Taylor Branch about the third volume of his monumental History of America in the King Years. This one is called At Canaan's Edge, 1965 to 68. Uh, One of the things you do in this book is you track the growing involvement of the United States in Vietnam parallel to the development of the civil rights movement. Uh, And there's some amazing uh, crossings here. The same day that police beat marchers in Selma turns out to be an important day in the history of America's involvement in Vietnam. Tell us about that.
2: Yes, the first Marine combat units landed in Da Nang within hours of Bloody Sunday on March 7th. It was across the dateline on March 8th. It was basically the same time Johnson sent the first explicit combat units there to, to guard air bases. So most of America was not really aware of the Vietnam War yet, but uh, the, the policymakers uh, were very intensely, and they knew they had crossed uh, several lines. It's quite poignant. We can now listen to telephone recordings of Johnson making these decisions, and, and the, that supplement all of the classified documents on the war. And he essentially is so worried about this war and that it's going to it's going to derail his his administration. And he and he is told basically that no amount of escalation will win the war; it'll just keep him from losing. So he sees himself plunging into a bloody mess. And he said, he asked Robert McNamara quite plaintively, can't we call these people MPs instead of Marine combat units so that the American people won't be so alarmed that we're going to war, which is poignant, uh, pathetic, and ultimately tragic that the president essentially is trying to sneak into war uh, hiding here because he is so apprehensive about what's going to happen johnson was not stupid about what was going to happen in vietnam he was clear-eyed and he anticipated and agreed with many of the arguments that the anti-war movement later made against the war but he did it anyway because he said essentially that he was afraid he'd be called a chicken and run out of office that the american people will forgive you for anything but looking weak so one of the, to me dramatic subtext here is is You hear Johnson cooperating very subtly with Martin Luther King on voting rights, saying that King's citizens movement gave Johnson the political space to do what he wanted to do anyway. But at the same time, they are becoming estranged. Two years before the public knows it, they're becoming estranged behind the scenes over Vietnam.
0: This book is about 1965 to 68, but it's uh, hard reading it not to think about the present. I wonder if you agree with that.
2: King's view on all of this was that that we lose sight of and are blind to some of the most basic things, that uh, nonviolence and the vote is uh, is at the heart of democracy, that a vote is nothing but a piece of nonviolence, and that we too readily think that we can create democratic uh, political uh, outcomes uh, through violence, and that's a common thread in Vietnam and in Iraq. I frankly think most professional soldiers that I know of are more sophisticated about the political limits of military force uh, than civilians, but uh, we tend to be cowed into giving up our democratic traditions when we're afraid. And um, King's life and the life of the movement around him is a shining example uh, that we don't have to do that and that we will build more lasting democratic uh, gains when we follow his example.
0: So while Marines are landing at Da Nang for the first time, the Selma to Montgomery March is setting out. And one of the crucial events on that otherwise triumphant march was the murder of Viola Liuzzo, who's a white mother of five from Detroit, who had come to Selma in response to King's Call as a volunteer. Uh, after she was murdered, J. Edgar Hoover told LBJ, you have a quote from Hoover, quote, She was sitting very, very close to the Negro in the car. It had the appearance of a necking party, close quote. Seems like sex was very much on the minds of the white racists of the day, including J. Edgar Hoover.
2: Yes, and it was worse than that. He also accused Viola Liuzzo to the President of the United States of when she was shot, it shattered the, the, the glass, and she had shards all in her her face and her arms.
0: And so she and, was shot in the car?
2: Yeah, she was shot in a car by Bush clan bushwhackers, and... Uh, Hoover said that she had shards and cuts in her arms, and uh, and it looked like a dope dealer, you know, that she had been taking uh, dope from um, uh, hypodermic needles. This was not only hateful, criminal, in my view, disgraceful, but it did mark panic on the, on the part of J. Edgar Hoover because one of the four Klansmen in the car had called the FBI in advance for permission to go on this uh, bushwhacking raid, and he had been granted permission to go. And he had been... Taking part in clan violence with fbi 's tacit cooperation for five years, and um Hoover really panicked over the fact that this if Viola Liuzzo became a national heroine and everybody knew that she had been inspired by president johnson 's uh, speech, she wrote a letter to saying that she went down because she'd been inspired by President Johnson, which Hoover made sure Johnson never found out about and that it never got publicized. He was afraid that if she became a national heroine and there was a big Cause celeb into how she had been murdered, that it would come out that the FBI was, in effect, complicit in the murder because one of its informants had had gone on the on the uh, bushwhacking team with uh, with permission, and so he essentially concealed the fact that he had this uh, informant tightly controlled it and smeared the na- the victim's name so that there wouldn't be too much sympathy for her, and uh, and he got away with it.
0: You cite a Ladies' Home Journal poll that found that fifty five percent of american women believed viola liuso quote should have stayed home close quote this was nineteen sixty five what what should we make of that
2: well i think that there, there are periodic reminders here we're in a different world today we take for granted many of the fundamental shifts in consciousness uh... that have occurred since then this was very early in the women's movement It's easy to forget that in those days uh, women couldn't go to most of the private colleges in the United States. In the trials over the killers of uh, Viola Liuzzo, it came out that women uh, of all races were forbidden to serve on any juries in Alabama and in several other states, uh, and they were restricted in 30 states back then. So we really are talking about a very subjugated and hierarchical society uh, on gender as well as race then. And many of the changes that were set in motion by the Civil Rights Movement have affected the relationship between the sexes in fundamental ways, too, that we take for granted. But back then, I mean, it was, uh, it was still a commonplace in women's journals uh, that, you know, women should stay home and, and, um, and take care of the kids, and that she got what was coming to her for mixing in politics. And uh, that was men's business, and um, that point of view was surprisingly strong then.
0: Taylor Branch, in your book, At Canaan's Edge, you show the many different things Jadger Hoover did to try to uh, destroy Martin Luther King. He wiretapped them, he bugged him, he planted lies in the press, he, he left him unprotected in the face of death threats, he tried to block his Nobel Prize, he tried to get King to commit suicide. How did King survive the attacks from Hoover and, and the others, the continuing death threats?
2: That's one of the things that kept me going all of these years uh, studying that because it grew as a mystery. We we have kind of a myth now that uh, that that King kind of went uh, prayerfully forward and succeeded, and that there, there's there's a there's a kind of pious calm about him. In, in fact, he really was in a crucible, and he was pulled under many different directions. He knew he was under death threat every day, and he knew his own government was divided over him. And at the same time, he is pulled in every direction, even by his own staff. I think the way he kept going is, and you can see it in his oratory, he had an unbelievable sturdiness of, of, of belief that, that drove him. He, he, was, he was depressed often. He was dismayed. Uh, and, and you can hear in the timbre of his voice that he was not always sure that the harsh realities um, could be overcome but he had a belief basically that that united a civic faith in equal equal citizenship with a spiritual faith in equal souls and and had nonviolence underpinning both of them and it gave a sturdiness in his rhetoric that is that is really haunting it is a clear pattern that in almost every speech he would put one foot in the constitution or the declaration of independence and the other foot in the scriptures and uh, and and say both civic and spiritual equality uh, kind of uh, unite us, uh, the only path to hope against the pervasive evils uh, that still plagued America. He he called them the triple scourge of racism, uh, war, and poverty, which he called violence of the flesh and violence of the spirit. And he thought we had uh, a light for the whole world in nonviolence, which he saw at the heart of democracy and at the heart of, of, of spiritual traditions for justice and love. So I think basically what the answer to your question is that there's a remarkable uh, sturdiness uh, of very ecumenical uh, freedom faith uh, that sustained uh, Dr. King through uh, hardship and depression uh, that uh, that would have destroyed um, most other people.
0: Taylor Branch, the last chapter of your book at Canaan's Edge, has uh, LBJ withdrawing from his own reelection campaign because of anti-war challenges within the Democratic Party and King working with the Memphis sanitation workers' strike. Of course, we know how the story is going to end. We've known from page one, but it's still a devastating last chapter. In and, and reading it, I remembered that the night that King was killed, uh, my girlfriend at the time was full of, of despair and, and rage, and she said to me, America is a rotten country. I had that feeling uh, all over again at the at the end of your book. I, I wonder how you feel at the end of your book.
2: Well, I started feeling bad long before that, because the, the, the saddest part of it to me is how lonely he was in his conviction there in Memphis. The, the last speech that he gave, I have seen the Promised Land, I may not get there with you, but we as a people will get to the Promised Land, that scene is so prophetic. Is not really new in the sense of Dr. King foretelling his own death. He did that all the way back to the bus boycott. Uh, he was under such a uh, constant death threat. What was new is the whole context of that speech is that he didn't think the Poor People's Campaign was going to have a breakthrough like Birmingham or Selma in his lifetime, and that he saw the momentum for nonviolence uh, receding, and uh, he, he became very lonely because of the Black Power movement and the poison of war had really t- kind of taken over, and people. No longer believed that nonviolence, uh, the nonviolent movement, was going to uh, uh, liberate not only the Black South from terror and segregation, but uh, the White South and women and lots of other uh, people who who have uh, reaped enormous benefits. So he was very, very, very lonely. And it seems to me that the uh, the real challenge for our generation is to is to is to try to figure out and and claim the blessings of the politics of that era, which really have been a benefit across the board and, and an inspiration to the world in South Africa and Berlin Wall, where they sang, We Shall Overcome uh, and Dissolve the Soviet Union Without Violence, that that kind of politics of of, of, of freedom and belief in democracy still is a legacy for us. And that, that, to me, takes some of the sting out of it. I think that he was right, that we as a people will get to the promised land, but uh, it will only happen if we make it happen. He, he said the country uh, belongs to its citizens, uh, and, um, and I think that's the enduring lesson.
0: Taylor Branch, his monumental new history of America and Martin Luther King from 1965 to 1968 is titled At Canaan's Edge. Taylor Branch, thank you for this book, and thank you for talking with us today. Thank you, John. I enjoyed being with you. I want to thank my guests, Harold Meyerson. He had our political update Taylor Branch talked about Martin Luther King in Selma. Thanks to our engineer, Teddy Robinson. Thanks to our producer, Renee Reynolds. Thanks, as always, to Ry Cuter for our theme music, Mambo Sinuendo. Trump Watch returns next week at the same time on this same station with more talk about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening.